Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Welcome to this week's Story Saturday, my attempt to give you a little something different in a time when every day feels pretty much the same. Today I want to share with you a story that I wrote back in 2012 after reading a fascinating article in Wired magazine called The Forgetting Pill Erases Painful Memories Forever. It got me thinking about how deceptive our memories can be, how different our versions often are from those of other people who were there. The story is called Pink Cathedrals. I hope you enjoy it. Ethan squinted at the river's glare as rowers glided through liquid gold. These walks along the Charles had grown out of the lonely months when he and his sister each had their own reasons for avoiding Sundays. When Emily's son was still alive, it was a day of pancakes and pajamas. For Ethan, it was the one time in the week when life didn't interrupt, when he believed that Adeline would always be there. I'm going to take the pill, Emily said, her face pinched with concern. Good for you, he replied automatically, but he was thinking that maybe time didn't heal. Maybe it only stretched grief thin until it snapped, leaving behind the frayed threads of a life broken beyond repair. I was furious when Mark got the prescription. They sidestepped a toddler riding a pushbike, and Emily turned her head like a drooping sunflower. But it worked. He stopped having nightmares. He still remembers the accident, but it doesn't hurt anymore. He's fine. Fine was a word for someone else's life. Of course, Ethan should feel glad for Mark and Emily. Between the two of them, they tried three antidepressants and four therapists in an attempt to blot out what they'd seen when a semi-T-boned their sedan. Traffic had been light, the roads dry, seatbelts buckled. The truck driver had been fishing for a CD. It was shocking how one thing not controlled could destroy everything. Ethan had been in Japan when he got news of his nephew's death, just hours after Adeline left him. The griefs got mixed together, so that even a year later, he couldn't think about one without the other. On the spectrum of hurting, losing a child was worse than losing a wife. But when he hung up the phone, it was just the same. Having one's pain eclipsed by another's was darkness just the same. You don't approve, Emily said. I never said that. I'm happy for you. Ethan tried to mean it. He would have turned six this week, you know, Emily said with a fragile smile. I don't want to forget him, but I'd like to forget what I saw that day. Which was the point of the pill? It erased the painful parts of memory, but not the memory itself. Emily had heard about the drug from a worn-out military friend, tormented by nightmares of Iraqi suicide missions and fear-soaked desert nights. One little pill had done what ten years of critical incident stress debriefing couldn't. It gave him back his sleep. Ethan thought it was the stuff of science fiction when she'd first told him about it. But scouring medical journals confirmed all that she told him. 
a lone scientist, had discovered that memories weren't made like a video camera on record, in full color and ready to be replayed. They were re-recorded with every recalling, altered beneath the shadow of the present moment. Ethan found a study on September 11th survivors, who were surveyed soon after the towers fell. Three years later, half of their memories of that day had changed. A woman who saw an old man jump now described him as a young gun with hair dark as sin. A man who was in the bathroom when the first plane hit now recalled looking out the window, watching its approach. None of the study's participants were aware of these distortions. Ethan thought about the first time he kissed Adeline back in college, standing on the smooth, flat rocks beneath the waterfall at Stowe Lake. Perhaps it was only in his transformed memory that she'd sworn she couldn't see her life without him. Her hair was cut short, black and silky, her mouth the breath of some exotic flower. It was one of those rare June nights when even San Francisco felt like summer. She was wearing a white halter top with no bra. He was sure about that part. I worry about you, Emily started, and then seemed to change her mind. What happened to looking for new work? I'm fine where I am. You hate it there. It's not so bad, he lied. I have vacation time. I might go looking for her again. Ethan, she's not coming back. You don't know that. We all know that. It was cherry blossom season in Japan. Sakura, they were called. Like all of their trips, it was Adeline's idea. A whim that would deplete their savings for another few months. It was always worth it to see her open up like a flower. Adeline never tired of possibility, of places and lives that were not her own. They flew into a gray, bleary-eyed Tokyo and took the train south to Beppu. Ethan was more impressed with the otherworldly speed of the bullet train than with Tokyo. Shinkansen, Adeline had corrected him. No one calls it the bullet train. From now on, there will be sakura everywhere, she promised as they surged through wooded Japanese countryside and perfectly ordered towns. She was right. Pale pink flowers flaked every branch like a child's dream of snow. Each stop they made was another place where spring had sprung in all of its improbable glory. The plan was to spend three weeks following the blossoms north until they reached Tokyo. Adeline had an aunt in Kyoto and friends in Hiroshima and Nara. They'd stay in love hotels in the places where they didn't know anyone. She'd introduce herself not as Adeline, the optimistic gift of immigrant parents, but as Harumi, a salute to the old country. Her parents had also given her their flawless, unsoiled Japanese. No one suspected she was a foreigner until they saw Ethan. They took a thousand pictures under those ephemeral pink blooms. They picnicked with sake and sushi and rice balls from 7-Eleven. Ethan kissed her neck and only stopped when she said that people were watching. In Miyajima, they stood out under the towering orange torii, where the water had receded with the tide. It was sunset, 
and Adeline reached for his hand. When the tide is in, the tori looks like it's floating. But it's lucky we're here now, she said, waving a hand up at the enormous orange structure. People leave coins and make wishes. A wishing gate. Only tourists call it a gate. It's a tori. She dropped his hand and pulled from her pocket a five-yen coin. She placed it among barnacles, with the thousands of coin-sized wishes glimmering in the sun. The day after Emily took the pill, she came by Ethan's apartment. He was already out of his work clothes and stood in his doorway in sweatpants and a t-shirt, not wanting to invite her in. It's amazing, Emily said, breezing past him. It's just a matter of blocking protein synthesis, which stops memory recall, she explained, as if science were a hobby for her. Ethan imagined the proteins of his memory as liquid color, teardrops of yellow and blue, narrowly missing the chance to become the first leaves of spring or the swish of Adeline's emerald dress. Emily thrust a pill bottle into his hand. There are three of them in there. I have more if you need them. I haven't changed my mind, he said woodenly. I'll deal with this the same way I always have. I'll give it time. Emily moved toward the door, her shoulders crumpling. He fumbled for the right thing to say, and when he saw her tears, hugged her instead. You're judging me, she said, pulling away. You think I'm taking the easy way. He envied her easy tears. He couldn't admit even to Emily that in all the time since Adeline left, since his nephew died, he hadn't cried. You have PTSD. It's different for me. I don't want to forget her. You don't know how it is. Mark and I barely talk. I can't even think about it, about him. I can't stop grieving. I know, he said. Neither can I. She paused, and Ethan knew what was coming. Is that what you're doing? Their arguments always came down to this. She abandoned you. I remember, he said tersely. Wouldn't you rather not? It's all I have left of her. But that night, he felt the pill bottle's plastic clatter in his palm. If he'd been a drinking man, he would have had a glass of bourbon or scotch. But it had been better for Adeline that he'd given that up. She lacked an enzyme that was needed to process alcohol. Asians were just lightweights, she told him. He thought she was kidding until he saw her with a drink. He could still see her sitting on their front porch a month after they'd moved back to Boston, sipping a watery gin and tonic as she watched the commuters pass through Jamaica Plain on their way home from work. Every few minutes, the well-worn rails of the tea rattled from half a mile away, or a horn honked, details Ethan only noticed after she was gone. She'd only had half of her drink, but was already drunk. I want to go back to Japan, she'd said, surprising him. I want to understand why my parents left their home. It had been naive of him to suggest that they go together, to think that it would solve anything. Perhaps she had been too surprised to object. Or maybe she'd been just as calculating as Emily believed. Maybe she'd planned on leaving him all along. They'd been there for three days, staying with her aunt, who showed no resentment when they slept in her bed while she slept on the couch. Everything, 
Even Adeline's aunt was compact and efficient, with no space for extraneous beauty or comfort. They rented bicycles and saw dozens of temples. Ethan couldn't remember their names, but soon understood that they were one more excuse to see the sakura. Even the locals took pictures with their cell phones, picnicking on blankets over their lunch breaks. A spell had been cast over this country where clocks were in sync and trains were never late. Time was suspended with the petals that clung to branches and lined every sidewalk. This is my cathedral, Adeline said when they'd wandered down a side street and come upon a canal dusted with blooms like stumbling into a monet. Who needs God when you have this? A swaggering breeze blew around them, and Ethan snapped a picture of Adeline standing under petals drifting like snowfall. At work, Ethan was supposed to be editing English from an instruction manual. Instead, he read an article about rats conditioned to fear a noise they associated with electric shock. Then they were given an early version of Emily's pills. The usual noise sounded, but this time they were relaxed. They'd forgotten. Ethan wondered when life had become about avoiding pain instead of living. Lately, he wasn't doing either. To strangers and acquaintances, Adeline had been California sunlight and beauty, nothing not to like. But to say that he'd fallen in love only with this side of her was not quite right. Even that first year at Cal, Ethan had gotten glimpses of an underground river of discontent. There were nights when she went out with friends and wouldn't answer her phone, tears in the aftermath of lovemaking, even a few times when she disappeared. She'd always come back apologizing, saying she didn't know why she had to run. Ethan knew it wouldn't stop her from doing it again. He'd grown familiar with the way the cords of her neck strained as she ranted about the color of her disappointment. And yet there was something addictive about the way she needed him. When they'd been dating for a year, he found her on his front porch. It's over, she said. He stood there, too stunned to be sure that he understood her meaning. I know now that I could never make you happy. You want this controlled, ordered life, and I want freedom, I suppose. He sat beside her, not touching her. There was something in the ring of her laments that made him think she enjoyed this, that the drama was all part of it. You don't feel free with me? How could I? You're so East Coast. You never lose control. You never really feel anything. That's ridiculous, he said. But he wasn't sure if he meant her accusation or that she needed him to lose control to feel free. You never cry, she wailed, and her body folded into itself like the collapse of a dream. Even now, you aren't devastated. Of course I'm devastated. That night, she got in her car and disappeared for a week. Her roommate said she'd left town, but they didn't know where. In true Adeline style, she'd given them several papers to turn into professors and asked them to take notes for her while she was gone. Her actions always seemed impulsive, but later impressively premeditated. 
And yet Ethan could never quite believe that she'd thought through the ways that she would hurt him. Then she was back, her dripping eyes and wet lips so oddly picturesque that they seemed practiced. He'd been overwhelmed by her capacity for sorrow, amazed at the seemingly endless tears and her inability to explain. He'd put his arms around her. He'd wanted to feel sad or perhaps relieved, but what he felt was not something he could tell her about. He felt like an actor who couldn't remember his lines. When at last her breathing calmed and she was able to speak clearly, she looked up at him and nodded as if this was what she'd expected. I'm stuck here, she said, waving at the casually neglected frat houses lining his street. Take me with you to Boston. After that, there was talk only of the future. The drug was what scientists called a PKM Zeta inhibitor, but on the street, it was just the forgetting pill. It was expensive, but already more than 10,000 patients had undergone selective memory erasure, or SME. It seemed too easy. You took the pill, focused on a single memory, and then drifted off to sleep. When you awoke, the memory would still be there, but any painful feelings associated with it would be gone. So easy, Emily said. It was Tuesday, and she'd come by to apologize for getting angry the night before. How many of these have you taken, he said, and then changed his mind and asked the question he'd wanted to all along. Has it made everything better? Emily flinched, but made a good effort at a smile. Not everything. It didn't fix your marriage. It's a start. It didn't bring him back. No, she looked away. It didn't. But it helps, he said, wanting to be kind. It helps, she said. They sat on his front porch, the pill bottle next to her glass of iced tea. It was autumn in New England, the best time of year. Japan had its adolescent perfection, its intoxicating pink champagne sakura, but New England had this, leaves of fire and sun dying into amber. Adeline had said it was the reason she'd agreed to Boston over all of the other cities that might have pulled her from her childhood home. Adeline used to tell me I couldn't feel things, he said, and cleared his throat, not looking at Emily. I think it's why she left me. Oh, Ethan, she said, and then squeezed his shoulder. But he couldn't read the look she gave him. They never made it back to Tokyo. They were at a taxi stand in Kyoto, their luggage at their feet, when she told him that she was leaving him. You can take the train back to Tokyo. Where are you going? But already she was turning away. I found a place where the rent isn't bad, she said, as if finding an apartment across the world were no different from staying at a friend's house for a night or two. Does your aunt know? Please don't bring her into this. She bent over and rifled through her backpack. I know you haven't been happy lately, but tell me what to do and I'll do it. I'm tired of telling you what to do. Her set jaw and squared shoulders pointed away from him. It's all I've ever done. It never makes a difference. Adeline, listen. But when he saw the contempt cemented in her face, 
He forgot what he'd intended to say. Listen. She hoisted her backpack onto her shoulders, wordlessly reminding him how strong she was without him. I regret it. All of it. But then she'd kissed him, like she didn't regret anything. And he'd let her. She didn't cry or yell or give him a chance to talk her out of anything. She simply pulled away, hailed a cab, and got inside. It was Friday, a day Ethan used to cherish since it meant relief from the job he hated but wouldn't leave. Now, Friday meant a weekend to fill, distractions to keep him from dwelling on the things he should have said to Adeline. Time was a decrepit shuffler who wouldn't be rushed. For the first time in months, he opened her closet. Scuffed silver flats, a black leather purse with a broken strap, jeans in the saddest shades of blue, an empty tube of lipstick that for some reason she would never throw away. What he remembered now was that even the way she dressed suggested a longing for something better. Maybe he could have predicted all of this if he'd paid better attention to the resigned shirt stains, the fraying hems. He traced his memories, conscious of the network of neurons that was shifting within the electrical fabric of his mind. He wanted to go back to the place where Adeline first began to think about leaving him. The summer after graduation, when their marriage was only weeks old, he'd found Adeline kissing another man at a party. He'd been talking to a classmate for no more than 10 minutes when he realized she was gone. He found her in a back room with a sloppy bearded guy, some hipster friend of the party's host. Adeline was clearly drunk and had seemed pleased when Ethan threw the guy onto the floor like a piece of cheap furniture. At home, they had gone to bed in silence. Ethan had listened to her crying in the dark, his back to her, but was too tired to fight. She'd accused him of not caring, and then stormed out of the apartment, taking only her purse and a thin jacket. The next morning, she wasn't back. By the afternoon, he began to worry. That evening, he called the police. The following morning, she was beside him, still wearing the clothes from two days before. She smelled of soft comfort, like a well-loved doll. She said nothing about the fight they hadn't had. She made promises to be better and kissed him again and again. He chose to believe her. His glass was empty, so he went inside. The pill bottle was in his pocket. He headed for the kitchen, but sank down on the couch instead. He closed his eyes, imagined their hands folded together, Adeline's dark head on his shoulder while she made promises she couldn't keep. There was a cruel memory lurking, but he shrugged it off. A sharp rapping on the front door startled him from sleep. He was surprised when his watch told him Friday night had come and gone. He moved to the door and all at once knew the memory he wanted to erase, if he were going to take the pill. He opened the door to his sister standing there in the dark. I'm sorry, she said, pushing past him. A gust of brittle, chilly air entered with her, the first hints of winter. I tried to sleep, but I had to talk to you. It's two in the morning, Ethan said, but sat beside her on the couch. 
Mark was so sure, and I thought maybe he was right. But now, slow down, Ethan said. He put his arm around her, and she leaned into him. Start at the beginning. She nodded, her mouth open as she inhaled. The first pill was fine. After the second one, we had a conversation about having another child. Can you imagine? That's incredible, Ethan said. But something inside him was breaking. But then I took the third pill, and I I missed it. You mean you missed him? Emily shook her head and trembled. I wanted to remember what he felt like in my arms the day he died, but it's gone. I think about the truck coming toward us, and I can see the paramedics prying him out of my arms, but I don't feel anything. I thought that's what I wanted, but I was wrong. I can't even cry when I think about him dying. I miss the pain. Ethan tried to speak, but his words were crumbling. He held his sister and closed his eyes. All he could think about was the memory that had come to him when Emily's knocking had awoken him. It was their second wedding anniversary, and they were supposed to be celebrating, but Adeline was angry. It had taken Ethan until dessert to realize that she was upset he hadn't taken the job with a startup because it would have meant a pay cut and a move back to the Bay Area, this time for the outside chance that the company would go public and everyone would get rich. After dinner, she'd sat on the couch with her feet in his lap. I didn't want to talk about work on our anniversary, he'd said, hoping it sounded like an apology. It's not just work. It's our life. You could have asked my opinion. You would have wanted me to take it? He was surprised to know she cared. And then a new thought occurred to him. Do you miss your parents? It's not that, she huffed. This could have changed everything. You might finally become... She stopped short, and he waited to see if she would continue. He'd interpreted her silence as thoughtfulness. I want to talk about something good, he'd said. What if we finally had that baby? Sometimes, when he recalled the memory, he imagined her reaching for him. He felt the cool silk of her palms on his face. He could almost hear her say, like a mother to her boy, that he was everything she needed him to be. Instead, she'd drawn her hands together in her lap, and frowned at her perfectly manicured fingernails. She'd waited a long time to say what she was thinking. Some people see their failures as a sign that it's time to move on. Now, with Emily sitting beside him, talking of the pain she wanted back, Ethan tried to remember what had happened next. He poured the pills onto his palm. He knew without looking that they were yellow, Emily shuddered. You didn't, she gasped. Not yet, he said, but I might. It's not what you think, she said, reaching for the hand that held the pills. He tried again to remember what Adeline had said next, how she'd told him that he was her biggest failure, perhaps, or that he'd never be anything but a disappointment. Whatever it was, it had been enough to make him consider just for a moment, leaving her. Ethan, don't, Emily said, and then pulled her hand away. He looked down, struggling to draw forth the memory. 
and then he wasn't thinking about the memory, but about what he was seeing. There in his palm were not three pills, but two. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. You can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. As always, I'm taking Sunday off because we all need a Sabbath. Until Monday, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.